0: All right. Uh, So assume that the guitar starts now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I have with me Stephen. Hello, everyone. And Sam. Hey there. And uh, here we all are, yet again, uh, here to look at uh, After Virtue, Chapter 6, uh, by our main man, Alistair McIntyre. But before we get there, uh, Sam, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah. This kind Uh, of... Hanging in there,
1: in this post-Telos world, you know? I am. Kind of aimless. Wandering, Mm. floating through life. Working... Studying, mm-hmm. sleeping, just kind I of I say you're repeating lost in the cosmos. I am so lost in the cosmos, except I'm also grounded on this earth. So we're just kind of lost on a rock, which is even so, worse. So
0: feet on the ground, head in the clouds, just having, you know, the whole pie and eating it too?
1: Very detached, yes.
0: Mm. Well, uh, you know, while you're floating up there all detached and such, uh, Sam, what are... What are you drinking
1: right now? I am drinking some lovely, uh, fresh Seattle tap water. Does that come with uh, free electrolytes and chlorine? It does. And I think there's some minerals in this too. It's it's pretty exclusive, only available um, in the Pacific Northwest.
2: Yeah, I'm not a fan of that sort of stuff because we, we discussed breathing last, uh, last time and in, in in similar vein, this can actually become very addictive uh, to the point where your life depends on it. So I try to stick away from water as much as possible.
0: Mm. Stephen, uh, you're obviously not a fan of water. Um, I myself am not either. Uh, but, but what are you a fan of these days?
2: <laughs> well, uh, right now I am drinking some of Trader Joe's hard pressed cider, uh, it's more specifically, Henry Hotspur's Hot Press for Cider, uh, 12 fluid ounces of Pure Joy. That's my tagline, not theirs. Um, so, yeah, just I'm not trying, imposing on any trademarks, I hope.
0: I mean, so my question is, from whence did the joy come and from whom was this joy pressed? Because uh, that could be a potential human rights violation. But,
2: and, and, and more importantly, you know, what's the aim of this joy? Um, and in human rights violation, according to McIntyre, we'll get into this. I mean, what even is a human rights? Uh, is it anything other than a moral fiction?
0: Oh, no, human rights don't exist. They're a moral fiction imposed by our managerial overlords in order to enhance their social impotence and control. Um, but we'll get there. <laughs> as, as for myself, uh, I am drinking some uh, lovely uh, Natural Natty's uh, lager. Um, it's somewhat tasteless, and I regret buying it. But here I am. Uh, (laughs) So uh, with that said, uh, let's jump right in to our after virtue, Mr. Alistair McIntyre himself, for the week. Chapter six, here we are. Uh, Chapter five, we left off with McIntyre talking about this new moral discourse that carries over assumptions from the predecessor culture, which is namely that Aristotelian virtue ethics with our three different steps towards making man better. And we have this new discourse that lacks the idea of Tilo. So chapter six, in summary, is kind of a bit of a cleaning up of the ongoing implications of that and expanding on a few key ideas. But the way that I think is uh easiest to think about at least half of the chapter is it's basically the the trolley problem meme where you have deontology and utilitarianism in constant conflict and that's basically how McIntyre lays out this chapter you know like 30 years before memes even became a thing so uh the first aspect of this is the utilitarianism slash consequentialism and this he characterizes with utilitarianism more or less attempting to create a telos that they've lost that this is the Enlightenment's version of trying to make a telos with some kind of universal thing that it's denied that exists, but now is going to try and make it through psychology. And it's going to do this through the concepts of pain and pleasure. And then as it realizes that that is too simplified for the vast number of types and strata of happiness that humans experience, that this isn't complicated enough. So then it'll try and divide it into lower and higher pleasures. This is going to be people like Locke. But this also isn't Really going to work, and then it's slowly going to realize over time, um, and then us to our present day that uh, happiness is not a unitary, simple notion, and cannot be a criterion for making our key choices. End quote. So this is somewhat a nail in the coffin for Hume's project. Ultimately, trying to find some sort of passion version of morality grounded in our psychology, um, but that's just not going to work. And so the result of the utilitarianism project failing is that thinkers decide that uh, moral reasoning needs to rest on irreducible and unarguable beliefs, which in the end, because we don't have a telos or a unified cultural teleology, is just the assertions of individuals, which basically brings us all the way back around to GE more and emotivism again. Next, McIntyre tackles deontology and the Kantians and neo-Kantians and their project of, of asserting that, quote, the authority and objectivity of moral rules is precisely that authority and objectivity which Belongs to the exercise of reason, and and under this category, he talks about natural rights in particular. But as Stephen alluded to, human rights are moral are moral fictions in the end, and arguments for them also end up in intuitionism and just intuitions in the end, much like utilitarian arguments. And he goes in into detail with some specific philosophers who were influential at the time that McIntyre was writing, and were sort of you know the end result of different philosophical development but the end result is sort of contra our wonderful declaration of independence that these rights are not self-evident human rights are not self-evident they are not they don't appear throughout history they aren't affirmed by everyone they don't just appear they aren't uh, some inherent quality that can be inferred to by reason they claim to be an objective criterion but they're simply not then continuing on in chapter six mcintyre moves on into our modern moral debate, and characterizes it largely as sort of an extension of this utilitarianism versus deontology argument, which is the clash of the rights of the individual and the utility of the bureaucracy, which you could see as deontology and and consequentialism, conversely. And both of these, he argues, are incommensurate, meaning that they can't be argued against each other because they start from different premises and can never be resolved. They're both incommensurate moral fictions. And quote, the mock rationality of the debate conceals the arbitrariness of the will and power at work in its resolution. And this goes back to the earlier chapters where he's talking about individualism and communitarianism and how this is sort of the artificial debate that we're all f- forced into talking about, whereas neither of these are actually tolerable states in which to live. And we can't ever live these out rationally because they just don't work out and the they're all self-contradictory. So he talks about here, I think, one of the most interesting parts of chapter six, the two modern moral masks or tasks that people do. And the first one is protest. And he says that protest derives from indignation, which is a modern emotion, which is a self-righteousness that appeals to people who already a- agree with you. And that he says that, quote, protests are shrill because the incommensurability of such debates means that arguments can never be won. And by the same token, self-righteous indignation arises from the facts from the fact that arguments can also never be lost. In other words, the incredible self-confidence of people who debate in the moral sphere, but are never defeated nor win, derives simply from that fact that they're siloed, that they only talk to people who agree with them in the first place. And so the arguments never go anywhere and never lose their incredibly confident moral quality. The second aspect of modern moral discussion he calls unmasking which i found very very poignant and this is the discovery of quote the unacknowledged motives of arbitrary will and desire which sustain the modern moral masks of modernity is itself one of the most characteristically modern of activities end quote so you can think of every slight vice and vox article here this is everyone sort of simultaneously discovering that everyone that they're talking to in the public sphere has these unacknowledged arbitrary moral guidelines that they're operating under to the expense of everyone else while simultaneously realizing that they don't have any arbitrary rules themselves or excluding themselves from their own analysis. You know, incredibly dishonest unmasking. Um, And he cites Freud in this. Anyway, very interesting. The final part of chapter six deals with characters again, which we brought up, I believe, in chapter two or three. And he talks about... The three primary emotivist characters, the first of which is the estete, whose function it is to see through the illusory and fictitious moral claims and, quote, if they are deceived, it is by their own cynicism. In, in other words, these are the people who sort of lie laughing on the sidelines and mock everyone who has their strong moral claims, realizing all along that they're all, you know, making arbitrary choices and Decisions, and we know these characters, and these characters exist, and you know they're the uh, stereotypical cynical people. uh, See David Foster Wallace here. Next is the therapists, and these he characterizes as perhaps the most self-deceived and deceiving. And here he only briefly mentions the different wars of uh, the schools of thought of psych of therapists and and psychology and the different ways that they characterize human beings and how to resolve the various problems that they undergo, while each pretends that they don't have any problems and that it's all resolved settled science uh, i recommend here seeing walker percy's lost in the cosmos Um, just the first few chapters address this quite eloquently but the final character is that of the manager and the manager's central claim in the emotivist amoral universe is that they have access to something called effectiveness, and that they're just like tools. They're amoral. They put themselves to the work of whatever is the end goal. They don't have any end goals in themselves. But but McIntyre argues that this is wrong, is that effectiveness is in fact a moral fiction and a moral thing to consider. It's not merely a tool. It's something that we actually have to think about because it's intimately, and you can't disconnect it from the worldview human beings are means and not ends to be manipulated, which is the emotivist worldview, which is you know one among many worldviews. So effectiveness is not its own special thing. It's actually connected with the fuller worldview and has to be considered on, under moral grounds. Um, and from this, he basically goes into a project that I believe is going to continue into chapter seven and eight of dismantling the managerial worldview and effectiveness as a concept. And he argues that basically effectiveness is meaningless. It's only used in context of managers and those who claim to be able to manipulate people and events in the economy to their own benefit or whatever benefit they claim is they're aiming towards. Um, But this doesn't actually work in the short term because it's always exploitative and not in any long-term interest. And it it can't be measured in the long-term because there's the multiplication effect of actions where any small thing you do basically trans out translates out into an infinite field of uh, affected things, and you can't calculate the effect of any one given action on the full field of the result. So what managers depend on for their authority is a knowledge uh, that doesn't actually exist. And here you might be able to see someone like Hayek and the knowledge problem in prices and et cetera. And so McIntyre says, quote, consider the following possibility, that what we are oppressed by is not power, but impotence. And here he quite snarkily compares CEOs and presidents of nations um, and says that they're basically about as responsible for system-level successes as clergy that happen to pray for rain right before the end of a drought are. So finally, he says that the objective facts that managers avail themselves to are only morally neutral if telos doesn't exist, which is in itself a moral stance. So to conclude, managers are appealing to a particular moral system in order to justify their own power, which he has very serious doubts that the the justification for the social control that they exercise actually exists, uh, which I believe he'll be getting into in chapter 7 and 8. And for one final connecting point, I would say uh, the First Things uh, review of Nicholas Nassim Taleb and his problems of statistics and the abuses thereof of the managerial class deals with a lot of this very, very well and actually says that Taleb, if anything is a derivative of McIntyre after virtue chapter eight, uh, which I'm very excited to get to because of this. So I would commend that
2: review to you as well. That chapter eight McIntyre just goes ham on social sciences. Uh, I, I've never seen anything like it. It, it, it. He has some amazing one-liners. So you're in for a treat. Let me tell you. I, there, there were uh, a few uh, things I, I particularly enjoyed. Um, Uh, one of the quotes, uh, and the latest defender of such rights, Ronald Dorkin, uh, taking rights seriously in 1976, concedes that the existence of such rights cannot be demonstrated, but remarks on this point simply that it does not follow from the fact that a statement cannot be demonstrated that it is not true, which is true, but could equally be used to defend claims about unicorns and witches. So (laughs) McIntyre does very seriously take the claim that rights are just simple fictions to the equivalent of Witches and unicorns, um, and he does a pretty good job at kind of dismantling the idea and just saying that yes, even the most prominent, uh, the most intelligent defenders of such, kind of at the end of the day, they just say, well, yeah, we we can't claim that they exist, we can't prove that they exist, um, kind of take it on faith, I guess, which is a very intriguing idea. I remember he he brought up this uh, a, a related topic at the last um, ethics conference, uh, the idea that uh, right space language is not. Uh, is not helpful in any moral debate. Um, he didn't go so far as to call it fiction when it was at the conference. He he just said this simply isn't helpful. We should be using more justice-based language. You know, kind of going back to the virtues, which you know that's he he dives a lot more into it in this. So I'm guessing he was playing with one of his previous ideas, or he was playing with this idea.
0: I think that one of the things uh, that McIntyre does really well, and this is on page 71 for anyone who's following along in their books, but he talks about protest as quote, but protest is now almost entirely the negative phenomenon which characteristically occurs as a reaction to the alleged invasion of someone's rights in the name of someone else's utility. In other words, when people protest, they are raging against the system-level claim of utility over someone's quote-unquote rights, whatever those are. And McIntyre goes into how these rights are, you know, continually expanding and continually understood to be encompassing you know moving from the let's say english in or scottish enlightenment version of negative rights of freedom from interference to the un declaration of human rights which now includes i believe i believe up to internet usage now as a human right that you have the right to demand that and he talks about how this protest in the in 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 favor of people's rights is always somewhat self-contained within a particular moral field. Often nowadays, I mean, you can see even in the past few days with the Women's March, or maybe even March for Life in terms of rights, um, that the utterance of this protest is almost always addressed simply to those who already agree with that person's standpoint.
2: It's the essence of virtue signaling, isn't it? It's you, you wish to show off to all your friends who agree with you how much you agree with them and how great.
0: You- sure, sure. Which is interesting because he just has a very negative view, or maybe pessimistic view, of the ability of people to be convinced by rational argument. Now he he admits that protest can be effective and can have and and can affect social change, but that in the ethical realm, there's never much movement. Like the arguments aren't ever actually resolved. If anything, it is a social. It's a power move. It's a you know. The will of one person against another to force them out of, you know, public acceptance or a social viability. And it's not actually, you didn't win the argument. You just managed to gain enough power to kick your enemies off of the stage.
1: Well, yeah, I think that you can easily say that protests are not the best places to have ethical dialogue. I think it's a pretty easy argument to make. I was also thinking about this exact section where he talks about the protest and unmasking. And I thought it was interesting of how this maps on to the American political system, how most of the protests that we see, you know, definitely in the last, several, uh, few, last few decades, are from the American left, which we would normally associate with like, communal activities. We definitely wouldn't associate them with traditional deontology. It's interesting to think about how most of those protests have on some level been about absolute rights and taking those absolute r- rights away from the good of the common, uh, the common group. At least they've been doing that in a, in a very segregated and um, separate ethical sphere, if that makes sense.
0: This is somewhat of a side point. So McIntyre believes that there's some sort of almost insidious collaboration in between individualism and collectivism as traditionally understood, because they cooperate with each other because they're the only two sides in the debate. And as long as they remain the only two sides, people have to pick one of them. And so, you know, as a, I don't know, quasi-sentient ideology, as long as they remain the two sides, they remain ascendant. And so at the same time, they interlink in weird ways, such as with individualism. If an individual exists outside of any lesser level collective organization, let's say you have an isolated, atomized individual with zero collective organizations, no church, no state affiliations, no city council groups, Knights of Columbus, whatever, it doesn't even matter. If they have no collective associations beyond the the individual, ultimately, the only place where they can look for for protection of their rights and affirmation is the larger collective, which is state and so there's this strange parasitic isn't the right word whatever the word is for two contradictory things coexisting paradox paradox yeah yeah there's a paradoxical relationship between extreme individualism and collectivism because any atomized individual will depend on the overwhelming power of the collective to enforce their rights in in other words because they don't have any intervening institutions and I think that speaks to the American system and also to just this paradoxical and poisonous relationship that McIntyre's unveiling.
2: I, I do concur with that to an extent. I mean, so, especially in an individualistic culture, but really in any culture, um, the the governments are what Aristotle would call the polis. Um, I mean, really half the Greek philosophers would call the polis. They are the ones that are going to be dispensing the various laws that whether or not the Greeks you know, used this language, uh, which they didn't, uh, that, that would be protecting or safeguarding people's rights. And so I don't think that that's necessarily a new phenomenon. There, I, I, that at the same time, that doesn't disregard or that doesn't negate the fact that it is a very paradoxical thing that the more individualistic you get, kind of the more you rely on the government on protecting your ability to become it, or to be your own individual, to, to confer on you these rights.
1: Might be said that you also go to the polis to even find your meaning in, say, two distinct cults.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and that's not necessarily to say anything bad about the polis. Uh, again, like back in back in the Greeks, it was kind of, it almost was your talos to be a good citizen to take part in in the city and, and in the flourishing of your fellow countrymen, especially since. You know, back in the day, things were a lot more hostile. And if you weren't part of a polis, well, you know, you were actually pretty vulnerable. At the same time, there is kind of toxicity that can and does come with, as you said, kind of the cults that that come out of this uh, franticness or shrillness of uh, individuals kind of uh, depending on the collective to give them their rights. So with
0: chapter six, I feel like we have sort of... in shows that i watch there are things called filler episodes where you know all the characters go to the beach or to a park or you know to like a fun park or something for the day and it's just sort of like a filler episode that doesn't really have it doesn't advance the overall plot chapter six feels like a filler episode for me where we're just sort of dealing with these people who haven't who we haven't really talked about we have to deal with the utilitarians and the deontologists and show how they fit into this larger moral scheme. Something, something. See Elizabeth Anscombe's uh, moral virtue essay that shook up the entire field of ethics and you know made everyone before and after her look like idiots. Stephen, you have something here?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up uh, Anscombe because I recognize uh, when McIntyre cited Sidgwick and uh, said that, quote, it was, of course, from Sidgwick's final positions that more was presently to borrow without acknowledgment. Uh, presenting his borrowings with his own prenumbra, a bad argument in Principia Ethica*. That, I'm guessing he is somewhat playing with Anscombe, in that he's somewhat playing uh, w- with uh, Anscombe's ideas, in that Anscombe said, pretty much from Sidgwick on, nobody has contributed anything to ethics, uh, which, especially now knowing this this sort of history, it's a pretty big slap in the face to more, uh, which is well-deserved, deserve- well of course. But with this chapter, I mean, I didn't... <laughs>
0: Entirely mean to, to simplify it down to this is the trolley problem meme, but I feel like this is basically the trolley problem meme, where we have, on the one hand, utilitarians and their unfortunate ability to not define what a util is. And on the other hand, we have the deontologists and them being loath to admit that reason objectively cannot reach anything that is self-evident due to the infinite multiplicity of human opinions. So, I think the point where this chapter really takes off is where it's talking about the characters, again, and particularly the manager, which is a pervasive concept, and one that, judging by what Stephen has said, and one from what I've read in other sources, is going to echo throughout the rest of the book. So, I guess, what do we think of these three main characters? The estate, the therapist, and the manager, and the relevance that they have at least at this point
2: well you see chapter six strikes me as kind of his continuing to hammer home this is what happened this is why our situation is like this it, it's kind of him saying see i've proved it to you doesn't this have a lot of explanatory power and then especially diving into the characters and, and saying doesn't this make sense this is why our society is so unwrapped with these characters uh and he his description of the manager i think is it is act very extremely painfully accurate in some ways. Uh, I have had managers that they would talk quite a big deal about effectiveness about, you know, leading a team or whatever and they would use all this, you know, fancy jargon and whatnot and I would see and hear from them maybe once a month and they would generally contribute nothing. Some of them were nice people, some of them weren't. On the other hand, there is something to be said for a team, especially a smaller team that is being led and has a particular goal i'll use my current team as an example you know we we are developing a product we need somebody to with as cliche as it is with vision who is able to see this is where i want to go this is how i think we're going to do this i have n years experience of software engineering and how to code well and whatnot so i'm going to kind of guide this team along and i'll tell this person to code out this and this person to code out this and i think there is something very necessary about that at the same time so here's here's
0: a question mcintyre makes the claim which i think is very contra to modern consciousness that effectiveness is not a morally neutral thing that effectiveness as a concept necessarily belongs to a worldview that views human beings as means and not ends and is ultimately fictitious and a measure of social control and thus is not an independent amoral floating concept to consider and my question is because you know i have a vaguely libertarian streak and the managerial concept is sort of the antithesis of the wisdom of the collective market, blah, blah, blah concept. At the same time, the wisdom of the collective market, blah, 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 is also an appeal to effectiveness in a way. So I'm curious, do we buy that effectiveness is a amoral, neutral concept, or as McIntyre says, is it actually not? Where do we fall
1: on this? I would personally say that it is not a necessarily immoral idea. I think it's at worst amoral. Immoral and or amoral? I, I think it is amoral, okay. at worst. And the reason I'd say that is there are certain Christian theologians and and also business ethics writers who have talked about how business can be used to actually find meaning. And as a business manager and a business owner, the most ethical thing to do is to preserve the meaning of their employees. This is a pretty rare stance, but I think in those communities, effectiveness would be something that is meant to give meaning to the employees' lives. And without that effectiveness, those employees would live less happy lives. Now, then we're back at happiness being an unquantifiable end. But I think you could make a pretty strong argument that living a productive life and doing good for other people is on some level an absolute good.
2: I think here Kafka would at least somewhat give a nod of approval in saying that if you're able to give employees a real tangible ability to contribute to have meaning in their work, there is something very healthy and beneficial. I mean, he wrote about the horrors of of the automated jobs and whatnot. And as as cliche as it is, uh, you know, kind of the the means of production and you you losing that, um, and you not you, you not being able to own the thing that you are taking part in. You are not making a car, you are putting a you know, a single bolt onto the wheel and there's no pride in it. There is a very meaninglessness uh, to that, a very absurd nature to it. And if you're able to, uh, to rail against that, I think there is something very good. The problem is I don't think that you could classify that as effectiveness um, because there probably would be a more effective way to go about, and if not, the unfortunate reality is you would probably get driven out of business. It strikes me that util or this is that effectiveness is a very is kind of a capitalist take on utilitarianism. That the more effective we can be, the better this company is. It's it's almost like effectiveness is the virtue of a company. It's just kind of a vice for for some people. Although at the same time, I, I mean, I I am nodding my head in approval of the idea of the of the moral manager who is trying to make life and work meaningful for their employees and having, having had bosses that do both that don't care about the meaning and have, you know, deep interest in me finding my work meaningful. I will say that it is a very marked difference and it is one that I very much appreciate.
1: Yeah. I think I'd I'd agree on the big difference that it makes. The only question remaining is is that just a nice bonus for the employee, or is that actually something ethically good and morally good? So I I'm I think
0: at a slightly different place because sticking to McIntyre's definition, managers claim authority by their ability to be effective. The ability to be effective is to manipulate individuals and systems over the long term for whatever end one person desires. McIntyre says this is not a neutral position because manipulating ends requires manipulating people as means and not ends and using them in particular ways. So it is not an amoral system. In addition, he says that, and this is where I think maybe I might agree with both you, Sam, and Stephen, on a micro level, that managers may be immoral. Or sorry, amoral, not immoral, amoral. But on a large level, I think McIntyre is arguing that it is a bad thing because the authority that managers require to exist, the ability to manipulate things and achieve a certain result, he argues is not actually true. He literally compares CEOs, presidents, people who claim to have... Managerial effectiveness abilities to create certain ends to the same level of effectiveness as random clergymen who pray that it rains right before the drought ends, and they just you know have they happen to have authority that they gain because of that.
2: That was a pretty powerful analogy. I remember being taken back when I read that. Just whew, he pulls pulls no punches. And so yeah, and
0: and so his conclusion is that just it's because I. I love the quote, is that we're not oppressed by power. We're not oppressed by people who are good at their jobs. We're oppressed by impotence. We're oppressed by people who have convinced us that they possess this quality of effectiveness which can't exist and can't be proven, can't be justified by any actual means. And, you know, that's that's what we're ultimately slave to. that The fact that they don't actually have control, um, but they have, you know, exercised social control to say that the that they do and exercise social control by virtue that they say that they do
2: which again yeah, I, I feel like i'm kind of beating on a drum on a right now but there is something very true about that um, especially kind of the higher up you get there are there are times when i kind of look at look at especially particular leaders within my company and just think man we're, we're paying you an absurd amount what what do you do? Which I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's exactly charitable or um, or even true. I'm not sure entirely how much I agree with McIntyre on that. But I think he does have some very good points in that there are certainly cases where, yes, we are. We are definitely hindered more or uh, oppressed more by impotence than, than power that that much. I, I very much agree. Um, I think that there are examples of good leadership that can assist. But at the same time, the analogy of the, the clergyman praying and just getting lucky and the rain coming, you know, it, uh, it does ring true. Uh, I think there is something very potent about that.
0: Something something Hanlon's razor uh, never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Love that one. Manifest incompetence is indistinguishable from malice. And vaguely, on that note, let's uh, move on from McIntyre here. In terms of incompetence, uh, Sam, uh, what article have you chosen for us?
1: The article I've chosen um, is actually accidentally related to the article I chose last time you had me on the show um, for a guest talk. This one's a short little op-ed in the New York Times, so pretty accessible. But it's by Arthur Brooks, How Loneliness is Tearing Us Apart. Arthur Brooks i assume most of our of our few listeners our four listeners will will know who he is but um case they don't arthur brooks is the president or the former president i should say of the american enterprise institute he's in the process of stepping down right now but he is an excellent writer and speaker on uh classical liberalism and just the overall political state of america so i'm really a huge fan of arthur brooks um i'm actually leading a book club At my uh, my school right now, my my university, and we are going through one of his books at the moment. So it seemed like a good time to read one of his articles and comment on what he has to say about loneliness. Basically, he looks at how lonely Americans are, and I know Brevin, you're going to push back push back against this later based on what your article talks about on the same subject. But he starts the article off with talking about a a study done by uh, Signa, a medical group, and this study was incredibly depressing. It goes through some different statistics they on loneliness they use the UCLA the UCLA loneliness scale which is a very well recognized test we can go into that later if you guys want to but this survey of about 2500 Americans concluded that 13% of Americans say that zero people know them well as well as some other awful statistics just under half the people surveyed report that they are sometimes or always feeling alone or are sometimes not or always feeling left out 43 percent say that they feel like they lack companionship for uh, another 43 percent say their relationships are not meaningful um, overall it was just this very depressing study to read and I went into the full study and read it um, and it was awful um so he then jumps into some analysis in Senator um, Ben sass's recent book them why we hate each other and how to heal and overall overall I really like Ben Sass because He's a senator. He's, and by his voting record, you'd think that he's a pretty straight Republican GOP senator. But if you listen to him talking, you listen to interviews he's given, he's extremely well-versed in political philosophy. And he has some, some very good perspectives on what his role is as a senator and what the United States government should be doing and how it's not doing that right now. Um, but basically, Sass concluded in his book that loneliness is killing us. It's literally killing Americans. Some of the biggest crimes that we've seen in the last uh, year were perpetuated uh, by people out of loneliness. Um, we saw the mail bomber um, who shipped out fake bombs, or supposedly think fake bombs, to uh, high-ranking Democrats, including the Clintons and the Obamas. Or the, the shooter at the Tree of Life Massacre. Both people... There, there wasn't a huge meaning behind what they were doing. It, and the one consistent factor between them is that they were extremely lonely. And so it, he goes in to talk about how this loneliness is causing people to act out rashly, to act out rashly in this siloed world, siloed world that we're living in. Because everybody's so siloed up, they're trying to find community in the polarized tribes of the left or right, or tying in uh, the article by uh, Sullivan from a couple weeks ago, the polarized cults of the left and uh, and left left and right. These tribes are made up of the us, constructed entirely out of contempt for the them. So the the the, the right tribe is based entirely out of their yeah you know, they have no they have nobody to go to, except they know that this group of people hates another group of people. And so they can find unity in that. So then uh, Brooks goes into some reasons of why this is happening. One of the reasons that he proposes is the changing nature of work. In America, work is being done very remotely. There's a lot more of the um, so-called gig gig economy where you don't get a job and stay there for 40 years and get to know the company culture and everybody at the company. But you're working you know, different gigs on your laptop on the go. And that's changing a lot of where people are finding their meaning. They're not able to find meaning at at work. Um, Stephen, like we talked about earlier on the podcast, how you know work can be used for, as something meaningful if you're able to get involved in the process of, of kind of guiding it and guiding the ends of that work. The gig economy is the total antithesis to that, where you have no guidance of that. You're just doing these tasks that are given to you by faceless um, executives. And then Brooks also interviewed Sass for the, Ben Sass for this article article and Sass says that this comes from the feeling of homelessness that people are going through life without, without ever having a home without ever having a place to plant down their roots and his recommendation is that you should go where you can find that hometown gym on a Friday night feeling put down roots and make plans to fertilize the soil and so the kind of the concluding remarks that Brooks has is he doesn't know where he's gonna be buried. He has no clue where, where he wants to fertilize the soil. And he himself is looking at a major move uh, from DC to Boston. But he concludes in kind of signature Brooks um, optimistic style, that's perfect for the conclusion of a TED talk, that really it's about the neighbor that he chooses to be in the community that he winds up calling home. And basically our solution to this loneliness is for Americans to decide to engage in their local community, and on a micro level, and that will ultimately lead to rectifying the problems on a macro level
0: that sounds like a classic collective action problem it does uh, yeah
1: it's
2: collective action sounds like the dirty commies
1: I, I love how you're calling the the president of a major free market think tank one of the dirty commies but um, <laughs> But no, the big question I have is, is he being way too optimistic here? Like, do you think that people could possibly mobilize in a way or take it or put up the effort necessary to form these small level communities he's calling for, let alone whether those communities could actually make a, a larger difference on America?
0: Do people do things or do people do things because people tell them to do things or do people do things because material realities tell them to do things? I don't know, but I feel like I'm becoming uh, a a Marxist by the moment. Um, Nonetheless, uh, my article, which is related in a way and is somewhat a rebuttal of Sam's article, uh, is called Enlightenment Now, one year after publication, I believe. Uh, It's by Steven Pinker, uh, a psychologist, I believe. And basically, around a year ago, Steven Pinker wrote a book that defended the Enlightenment. Against modern critics of various shapes and sizes, Uh, and there were many, you know, you could say, just or legitimate criticisms and different scalpels and way to analyze it, you know, such as there were several Enlightenments, just one. If you defend the Enlightenment, you have to defend er everything that happens from 1800 onwards, etc. But I found the article very positive in that answered a lot of complaints about his book, but also just made a defense of the Enlightenment in general and specifically, you know, the Enlightenment that happened. Happened in Northern Europe, you know, 1800 onwards, and he goes through just a number of statements or uh, objections to his book, response to them. So let's just take like maybe three of those so far. Uh, First is that quote: "The Enlightenment is not worthy of celebration. It gave the world racism, slavery, imperialism, and genocide." And he basically just turns this argument on its head. Quote: "The only part of this claim that is right is that some of these practices continued to take place after the 18th century." Otherwise, it is exactly backwards, quote. He makes a fairly straightforward and convincing argument that racism naturally arises from ingroom bias and is universal. Imperialism is also universal, except in the places where Enlightenment said, hey... Maybe not. Maybe we shouldn't colonize everybody. Slavery is also universally accepted by historical moral thinkers, including uh, Buddha and Jesus, and only really goes away when you have human rights and Enlightenment thinkers who come along and say, Hey, uh, how about not? Uh, Another objection he takes stock of is, uh, quote, How can you say that we should stop worrying and that everything will turn out okay? How about plastics, school shootings, global warming, et cetera, end quote. And uh, he says, well, actually, we're in a pretty miraculous age. Uh, School shootings and gun deaths are down in general. Global warming, there's a number of, or climate change, there's a number of international agreements and Advanced countries actually hit a plateau of the amount of damage that they do, and then they start to level out as they adapt more green technologies. Things actually seem to be getting better overall, and so you should deal with it. Um, but this also doesn't mean that we should ignore individual suffering and we should deal with it. But just that your individual bias towards stories of people with particular problems does not mean that the overall is worse off. And the next quote, uh, quote, all these numbers showing that the world has been getting better must have been cherry-picked, end quote. And he says, actually, it's the opposite. Numbers showing that things are getting worse are cherry-picked and that the media is biased towards disaster, which is manifestly true. What are you going to read? An article says that murders in Chicago are up 10% or that murders everywhere else in the country are down by 20%. There's lots of good news in the world, and there are some news organizations that are particularly focused towards purveying that kind of news, which he points out. But news is inherently biased towards bad news, which is why we feel depressed about things happening in France and Germany and blah, blah, blah. Because it appears on our Facebook feed and we have to, you know, summon the necessary empathy to identify with these problems that don't have anything to do with us and are not representative of the general state of the rest of the world, which is generally getting more peaceful, less murderous, etc. There's lots of good news. And specific response to the article that uh, Sam read, he doesn't deny that loneliness is a problem, but he says that it's not a universal problem. It's a weirdly specific problem. Quote, Though some subpopulations are tragically suffering, in particular, middle-aged, less educated, non-urban, white Americans, the belief that people are increasingly unhappy is a persistent illusion. The crisscrossing lines for the United States and the world explain why so many people are mistaken about suicide trends. American writers who report a suicide epidemic have picked one of the rottenest cherries from the bin. Data for the United States, which is defying the global trend, from a starting point of 1999 when it had sunk to one of the lowest points, end quote. In in other words, things are generally getting better. Uh, The Enlightenment has generally resulted in increased material effectiveness, let us say, and negative profits, to the contrary, are generally cherry-picking from the Worst subpopulations. Uh, so let's be a little bit more positive, if you damn please.
2: <laughs> I mean, that—that that is one thing I do kind of find myself kind of staring at myself in the mirror, wondering how honest, how honest I'm being whenever I start bashing on the Enlightenment, because it has given us quite a few great things. My, my entire job would not be here if it weren't for the Enlightenment. And so I am grateful for that. And also the Enlightenment brought us, you know, those cool mini computers that we carry around in our pockets and use to com- communicate to other people, to other people who live thousands of miles away the enlightenment brought us the fact that we could do podcasts and it did bring about a lot of good i'd be intrigued to see him take on both specifically the the loneliness epidemic because i have been hearing more and more about that and maybe it's just news you know freaking out as it always does in painting a a particularly bad picture but i mean for example i think it was england appointed literally a minister of loneliness or or a minister being like a government official, that is. Uh, I forget what exactly the official title was, but it was someone in charge. It was like a subset of the public health that people are just feeling so disconnected. And so I'd be intrigued to see him tackle loneliness specifically, not just overall overall happiness. But this was kind of a nice pushback on okay guys let's calm down let's not completely bash on the, the
1: Enlightenment. yeah i have a couple thoughts on that uh, on this article too is first of all Stephen, i agree with you that some um you know there, there are huge benefits for the enlightenment my go-to comeback whenever brevin and i are having a conversation and he's talking about maybe we just need to do away with liberalism entirely is my comeback is like okay but I really like society, so I can't go that far. <laughs>
0: Sam, I don't know if, if, if you know this, uh, but we we actually live in a society,
1: if you think we about it. We do live in a society, and it's a liberal society that came out of the Enlightenment, and I like it. But the second thing is, uh, specifically on Stephen Pinker's studies for happiness, is I looked at the studies, and they were kind of lacking i mean they were basically involved asking people hey are you happy are you feeling good about the economy next year and and i'm not sure if those two questions alone could quantifiably determine happiness happiness is made up of so many different things and so this might go directly into the third thing i wanted to say which is you know i think that what we fall into a lot with these with these pieces is you know, looking at is the enlightenment good or is the enlightenment bad? And what may be healthier and more productive is to look at, you know, what are the benefits of the enlightenment? What are the cons? And then trying to mitigate those cons instead of trying to defend the entire system or throw out the entire system. I think that might be the moderate, the radical moderate in me speaking, trying to forge a way forward where we don't end up tearing ourselves apart.
2: Concerning the uh, different different studies that are showing different things or whatever, Chapter 8, McIntyre uh, brings this up and he takes social sciences to task. So stay tuned if you want to see McIntyre go ham on some uh, social sciences. But uh, I also have an article to present, uh, again, by my, uh, my main man, David Foster Walls. He wrote on Joseph Frank's uh, Dostoyevsky, which uh, jo- Joseph Frank, he is a Dostoyevsky expert. He wrote, uh, at least at the time of publishing, I haven't checked to see if he ever finished it up. But he wrote four massive volumes uh, categorizing Justo life, his work, how his you know various experiences impacted his work, and uh, apparently is like the de facto standard. Expert on uh, Dostoevsky, and uh, apparently David Foster Wallace is a massive fan both both of Dostoevsky and of Joseph Frank. And praise from David Foster Wallace is difficult to gain uh, within this collection of essays that I'm reading uh, from Consider the Lobster. There are two reviews that he gives, or three reviews that he gives total. Two of them are eviscerating. He just tears people apart. But on this one, kind of similar to the uh, G.E. Moore and all the accolades kind of getting almost cringeworthy how much they praise him. David Foster Wallace does the same thing. I mean, he just lavishes praise upon both Dostoevsky and uh, Joseph Frank. What is particularly interesting is, as always, Dave Foster Wallace's project is get rid of cynicism You know, don't don't fear naivete too much. Don't be afraid to to commit to something outside of yourself. And in this, one of the things he is absolutely fascinated with Dostoevsky is his ability to take serious moral, spiritual, philosophical questions and discuss them seriously, unironically, and yet very well. Uh, his characters are well-created. They are alive every, whenever you read a Dostoevsky book, David Foster Wallace kind of described it as the characters live in you for the rest of your life. You never forget them. They are just part of you. And having read Brothers K, I, I could testify like, holy cow. Uh, it's, it, it's absolutely haunting. He is just impressed by the fact that he is able to create characters like that, do very good stories and also have these serious questions and people take him seriously. And he, it's funny, throughout the entire essay, he has a little asterisk where he'll, he'll go on these philosophical tangents completely and utterly unrelated to the, uh, to the overall essay. Uh, one example would be, uh, he has asterisk, just a separate paragraph, asterisk, is the real point of my life simply to undergo as little pain, as much pleasure as possible. My behavior sure seems to indicate that this is what I believe, at least a lot of the time. But isn't this kind of a selfish way to live? Forget selfish. Isn't it awfully lonely and uh, asterisk. And he has this sort of thing that he just kind of reiterates it over and over. And at the very end of the essay, he says that like the only way for for modern authors, for mo- modern uh, you know literary people, to discuss these sort of questions is to uh, do it you know really underhandedly. Uh, for example, like you know, sneaking it in some dialogue or putting it in asterisks or some such uh, shit. And he, you know, very, very ironic, which is kind of funny because he hates irony so much. But you can tell that he's very frustrated by that fact. Um, he has another quote. Uh, apologies, this one is somewhat long. It's actually not true that our literary culture is nihilistic, at least not in the radical sense of Turgenev's Ter- Bazarov. Not really sure what that is. Uh, For there are certain tendencies we believe are bad, qualities we hate and fear. Among these are sentimentality, naivete, archaism, fanaticism. Uh, It would probably be better to call our own arts culture now one of congenital skepticism. Our intelligentsia distrusts strong belief, open conviction. Material passion is one thing, but ideological passion disgusts us on some deep level. We believe that ideology is now the province of rival SIGs and PACs, all trying to get their slice of the big green pie, and looking around us, we see that that is indeed so. But Franks Dostoyevsky would point out, or more like hop up and down and shake his fist and fly at us and shout, that if this is so, it is at least partially because we have abandoned the field. That we've abandoned it to the fundamentalists whose pitiless rigidity and eagerness to judge shows, how, shows that they're clueless about the, quote, Christian values, end quote, they would impose on others. To rightist militias and conspiracy theorists who paranoi- whose paranoia about the government supposes the government to be just way more organized and effective than it really is. And in academia and the arts. To the increasingly absurd and dogmatic political correctness movement whose obsession with mere forms of utterance and discourse shows too well how effete and aestheticized our best liberal instincts have become, how removed from what's really important. Motive. Feeling, belief. Kind of the beginning of that quote is the most important. The fact that he hates the fact that we're so afraid to answer these questions and that the only way or that any anyone showing um, these sort of deep questions, he later says, uh, would at best kind of have a raised eyebrow and a cool smile or maybe some bit of uh, kind of dry, dry remarks uh, in the New Yorker. The only other thing I I, I will mention is uh, the fact that just somewhat relatedly, um, he has, quote, the good old modernists, among their other accomplishments, elevated aesthetics to the level of ethics, maybe even metaphysics, and serious novels after Joyce tended to be valued and studied mainly for their formal ingenuity, end quote. Uh, And that one is... Somewhat tertiary to his main project, but um, it just made me think of G. E. Moore and uh, the the elevation of uh, ethics to aesthetics. But uh, moving on from the article, I, I also have a rant, and it actually comes from the article uh, that was brought up last uh, uh, during our last podcast on burnout. And I was I was very impressed with this article. Um, there was a follow up article that I read, and this inspired a rant. Though I, I do want to point out that there is no. Um, this is in no way negates my admiration for the previous article. I thought the previous article was quite good, uh, even though I disagreed with on some points. The, the follow-up article consisted in mainly interviews with various uh, people. I think they the, the author chose 10 or so people uh, to interview and discuss burnout. And one of them, I think they were a young man who uh, had a religious background, uh, it sounds like from... From what he describes, a very intense religious background. Uh, I want to say Jehovah's Witness, but maybe just uh, fundamentalist at the very least, a very fundamentalist uh, evangelical-ish branch of Christianity. They were describing how kind of everything was either church-centric or Jesus-centric, and that it robbed a lot of the joy out of life. Which, to an extent, I can sympathize. There, there is something about the tacky fundamentalists that you know, whenever you bring up anything, it's well, that's no good unless it's talking about Jesus. Like there is something very frustrating and very, oh, screw you uh, about that sort of thing. But one one example was that, you know, he, he complained about going to Mexico and going on a missions trip and building houses for the poor and how he was frustrated that it had to be that his trip to Mexico uh, wasn't to Tijuana to relax, but rather it had to be to build houses for the poor because it was all about doing good works and doing it for Jesus and and whatnot and on the one hand i i really do understand what he's saying and that there is something about the joyless like we must do more and more and more but on the other hand it's like come on you were you were helping people you were helping the least among us who don't freaking have homes and your first thought is to say that you would rather be in tijuana what's the matter with you in this idea that you are just somehow entitled to all of your time and you're entitled to never have to serve other people that's just absurd that that is so fundamentally selfish and sad and it, it was just a very disappointing thing to see and again I, I somewhat understand that he is talking about the kind of creepy need f- for always doing things religious but it's just like how oh, sweet mercy come on man you were doing a good thing helping people and you're upset that you didn't get to do something for yourself instead
0: well speaking of not being happy. Uh, For my own rant this week, I would like to speak a word or two against uh, Alan Watts. For those of you who are not aware, uh, Alan Watts is a Episcopal priest and sort of a Buddhist mystic type, trying to combine the Western and Eastern philosophies and such. I want to be somewhat humble here because I know relatively little about Buddhism and I don't want to speak critically terribly of that which I don't know that much about. But what I can say is what I heard from Alan Watts' own mouth and his own beliefs, and those I can freely criticize. So a lot of this comes from his lecture, uh, which is available on YouTube called uh, When You Are Lost. I, I definitely have sympathy for some parts of his argument, especially where he's skeptical of science and the scientific program of infinitely... Cutting things down into smaller pieces and then pretending like that gives us a full knowledge of them. But what I don't like is what Walker Percy would call escape by Eastern window, where you just sort of escape into vagueness and sort of alien, at least to us in the West, philosophies in order to avoid actual real problems like the problem of evil that we like to wrestle with here in Catholic theologies. Um, like, for example, he, he says that he doesn't like Western philosophy because it forces you to affirm concrete concepts. But at the, at the same time, he then, when he's explaining Eastern concepts, reduces them to aphorisms and particular sayings. And, you know, for my traditionalist Critique. I would say he's appropriating, blah, 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 but we don't have to go there. But in reality, the main problem that I had with his lecture is that he reduces the problem of evil to a weird version of stoicism, where the real problem is not that evil exists and that evil must be confronted and destroyed, resisted, endured, etc., which is the adventure of life in the Christian journey. But his argument is is instead that all of the answers and all of the being and all of the whatever are all inside us all along, and all we must do is attune ourselves to that, and we deal with evil and deprivation by eliminating our desires. In other words, we eliminate the problem of evil and destruction by eliminating our desire for creation and goodness. And that's where I think I have the most problem with his argument, where he tries to avoid Gnosticism and nihilism by saying that mindlessness is not the end of what meditation and enlightenment should be, but that is where he has to end up in the end because you can't have Thanksgiving if you don't have an idea of what evil is. And he wants to have Thanksgiving but avoid the concept of what evil is. So Alan Watts, interesting and compelling, but ultimately a ibuprofen for a world that requires, I don't know, confession, cathedrals.
2: Was he coming at this from mainly, I'm I'm guessing it was mainly from a Buddhist perspective, not necessarily a Stoic, uh, R.E. Marcus Aurelius, for example. Buddhist and Hindu, yeah. I see. Sam, you have a
1: rant today. Yeah, I do have a rant, and this is a rant that actually came up today. I was just reading around articles that I'd read in my history or whatever, and I came across this one that I think makes such a mockery of moral um, ethics dialogue that I just had to read parts of it. It's called "It was." It came out in September, so it was during the Coven- the Kavanaugh hearings. The charges against Br- Judge Kavanaugh should be ignored by Dennis Prager. Have either of you guys read this article? I'm afraid I haven't. I also have not. Oh, you guys aren't missing out on much. And the reason this article uh, frustrates me so much is because I'm not a fan of Prager, but most people are... He's generally like a, a fixture on the right as kind of what mainstream Republicanism is in America, or at least how he's considered. And this article makes... I just have to read parts of it, where he talks about how uh, his opening line is, it's impossible to overstate the damage done to America's moral compass by taking the charges leveled against Judge Brett Kavanaugh seriously. It undermines the foundational moral principles of any decent society. And then goes into the supposed moral standard that if he did something terrible, you know, 40 years ago, that we shouldn't hold him accountable, because that is nihilistic nonsense. And I thought the article was almost satirical um, for part of it, but it's not. It's a legitimate ethical defense of the argument that everyone has a moral bank account and that good deeds are deposits and bad deeds are withdrawals and that this man has made so many good deposits that therefore his one bad withdrawal 17 years ago, or sorry, when he was 17 years old, doesn't count. Now, wherever you come down on this issue, I think it's pretty clear to say that if this is the, this is a good example of the depths that these two tribes or the two cults that we're dealing with on either side of the aisle have to stoop to in order to make an ethical argument, and it's quite depressing.
2: Dang. Yeah, that's, that's a whole lot right there. also just, dang, those ethics though, that's uh. That's a pretty shoddy ethical system.
1: The The worst part of it is the very end where he gives examples of his mother who was sexually harassed as a, or his mother and his wife, two different examples, who were sexually harassed in the workplace. And they learned how to avoid their manager and tell him to buzz off and how that is true empowerment.
2: Wow.
1: Yeah. So that's my rant is that this is relatively acceptable dialogue or was at least at the time that these hearings were going on. So I'm not sure what that says about the state of our nation, but it's certainly not good.
2: Almost as if we live in a wasteland in which uh, ethical dialogue is at best stilted and at worst, uh, well, at that level.
0: It's almost as if we're caught in constant debates in which we either protest against the uh, invasion from the uh, utility of some other unspeakable managerial monstrosity, or on the other hand, unmask the duplicitous and uh, will-to-power motives of someone else. So, is this an
1: unmasking or a protest?
0: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, um, with all that out of the way, technically, we have reached the end of our uh, podcast for the day. I will ask one thing. Uh, What is uh, one word that you feel particularly enamored of this past week, uh, Stephen. Go.
2: Do you say enamored?
0: Yes. One one word you feel enamored of.
2: Oh, this this is all coming so fast. This is uh, a very
1: tricky question. <laughs>
2: yeah, one word. Uh, Sam, what's the one word that you're enamored with?
1: Oh, I'm I, I'm working on that myself. Brevin, you could have told us this like at the beginning of the show and maybe we'd have one by now. That would have lost all the fun. It
0: it it has to be uh spontaneous.
2: Okay, okay, Brevin, what's your what's your one word of the week?
0: Uh my one word of the week is society. I don't know if y'all have been paying attention, but we live in a society that tells us things that may or may not be contrary at least as a collective form to what we individually believe. Yet, on the other hand, we also live in a society which gives us guidance and helps us decide what we individually should believe. And I don't know if you all notice this, but living in a society, there are many conflicting forces that exist. And as we live in a society, there are infinite different directions that I could take that conclusion in order to justify any number of various op-ed articles for Vox, Vice, New York Times, National Review, etc., And because I've realized that we live in a society, which is my word of the week, society, I am obviously a more woke and uh, lit than y'all. So that is my word, society. Stay
2: woke, fam. Well, as tempting as it is to just grab Infinite Jest, open up a random page, point to it, and odds are it will be some insanely long word that nobody has ever heard of before. Uh, I think I'm going to go with the simple one-syllable world, uh, time. So I I work on a team that's mainly uh, working on calendars right now. And so I, I've i gotten the my kind of the, the piece that I've chosen slash gotten assigned slash whatever is working on all the math behind how different calendars work. And so I've been working on primarily the Gregorian, Japanese, and Hebrew calendars and just some really, really cool, very unique uh, math that goes behind uh, the different calendars. Um, some really weird stuff, you know, involving leap seconds, some weird stuff involving uh, uh, like Weeks going disappearing. Uh, for example, when we switched over from Julian to Gregorian in 1582, they just jumped ahead two weeks uh, to compensate for all the time that had been lost because of the Julian cal- calendars inaccuracies. So, just some very cool things with uh, with calendars and with time that I've been uh, been able to contemplate recently. Hey Sam, I, I stalled as long as all I right. could for you. Thank I you. I did what I could. Man. I mean-
1: I'm going to use the word that I probably use the most times in this podcast, which is that of depression. Is what, and I'm not talking necessarily in the mental state, but what happens? I guess like that's an experience that I would relate to from hearing both McIntyre's analysis of our current state of affairs, these articles, analyses of our current state of affairs, our rants. Overall, the outlook of the world is not so bright. And I guess. It, it would lead me to wonder, is the natural reaction of a human being in the face of this depression?
2: Ooh, now, that's a good question. See, I don't know, within the Christian narrative, there's always been this idea of the world is profoundly broken. And yet, and yet, th- there's there's still hope, there's still healing that can be made, um, which I, I think is a very realistic and yet cautiously optimistic take on it that I still take some hope in um, even when yes, the depression gets real. Uh, well, Walker as,
0: Percy would say that, you know, who are we to say that the suicide is not being rational in the face of a world that is manifestly insane.
2: That, that section uh, that you're describing is absolutely haunting. It's it, it has echoed in my mind for the last three or four years. Um, just the idea of like, maybe you're entitled to be depressed. Maybe maybe the only sane thing to be is depressed. The uh, What is it he calls the the only people who aren't depressed are uh, chuckleheads, uh, California surfers, and fundamentalist Christians, and you would much rather be depressed than be any of those three.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's rough but true. But anyway, uh, for the Problem with Reading podcast, uh, I am Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. See you next week. ba 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 Enlightenment. One could almost say that uh, we live in a society. Word. Dude, that's so deep. Dude, I know. I got it off of a
1: meme that was the Joker face, and it was, we live in a society. Really? I heard it on a podcast.